Hello. This is the April 8th, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I don't know how many of you are participants of the off-road triathlon series known as the Xterra races. These are triathlons that are made up of open water swims, a mountain bike ride, and a trail run. Now, personally, I am not a mountain bike rider by any stretch of the definition that you might want to apply, even though I do own one. And I've actually tried an Xterra race, and it was, well, it was interesting. I actually have the utmost respect for people who participate in Xterra races, as they are really, really difficult. I just personally don't have the technical abilities to ride a mountain bike very well, and so the likelihood of my ending up at the bottom of a cliff somewhere is equally as likely as my finishing the event, so I just stick to the roads. That said, I was really intrigued when I saw a recent announcement a little while ago that Xterra has decided to move their world championship from its longtime home in Maui to a new location in Trentino, Italy. More than that, though, this heralds the beginning of a rotation of the location of the Xterra championship, similar to what's done on the 70.3 world championships in the Ironman side of things. Now, at first blush, this move might seem somewhat similar to the kind of thing that we are seeing stirring lots of debate in relation to the Ironman World Championships move from Kona to St. George in May of this year, but in reality, the circumstances are actually pretty different. While Ironman has its roots and emotional ties to the Big Island, the Xterra World Championships have similarly only ever been held in Maui, but that location has actually been less popular among the athletes who participated in the sport than Kona has always been amongst Ironman athletes. A bigger proportion of Xterra athletes you see are from Europe, and so participation in a Hawaiian race has always been prohibitively expensive and somewhat exclusionary. So this move to a European location has been very much embraced within the Xterra community as kind of long overdue. Furthermore, the course itself is such an integral part of an Xterra event, and having a rotating event will allow for different kinds of courses in different beautiful locations to be featured that it's very much a hallmark of the whole Xterra raison d'etre, that this decision is kind of a no-brainer, and it's easy to see why it's been so widely hailed. Now, as you know, I also feel that the course and location are important features of both the 70.3 and full Ironman events. I happen to think that the St. George course for the Ironman World Championships is going to be wildly popular, at least amongst the pros and the top age groupers, who are also going to be very complimentary about how this course does a great job of really rewarding the best athletes on the day and in separating the pack and breaking up drafting that plagues the race in Kona every year. Similarly to how we have seen some amazing race courses on the 70.3 World Championships in France and Austria and South Africa, I think the argument for a rotating Ironman World Championship is further bolstered by this Xterra decision. As always, though, there is the emotional tie to Kona that is going to be very hard to disentangle from this whole conversation, and that, in the end, is going to make the final outcome of all of this far from certain for at least a couple more years. Time will tell. On the show today, I'm going to talk about a product that came to my attention about a year ago, but kind of stayed off my radar because of its lack of availability in North America. Recently, though, the makers of Prepid began shipping to the United States, and I thought it was time to take a look at some of their claims and to see if they stood up to the scrutiny of the evidence that they provide. 
If you're unfamiliar with this product, Prepit is a solution that contains a digestion-resistant starch, essentially a type of fiber, that was originally developed to treat children suffering dehydration from cholera. While the product did work for this purpose, it proved too expensive for the communities that it was originally intended for, compared to other similar products, and so the researcher who developed it looked for another population who might benefit. He settled on endurance athletes, and so this, quote, revolutionary hydration enhancer, end quote, was born. I originally heard about Prepid from my friends who live in Australia, where it was first available and marketed, and I was originally intrigued. Does it do any of the things that its makers claim, and is it even half as revolutionary as they say it is? Well, as I said, I didn't pay a whole lot of heed at the time, but since it's now making its way overseas, I look at the evidence, and I let you know what I came, think, what I came away thinking, and that's coming up very shortly. Later, I'm joined by professional triathlete Tim Don. Tim has had an incredible professional career, marked by victories and a spectacular recovery from a horrific injury. Many know him as the man in the halo, and for good reason. His comeback after sustaining a broken neck while in the final days of preparation for the Ironman World Championships in 2018 is really the stuff of legend, and he joins me to talk about all of it just a little later on. Before that, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast. Without them, this podcast would, quite frankly, cease to exist, and I am forever indebted that they think that my efforts are worth the price of about a cup of coffee per month to keep me bringing these episodes to them and to all of you. In exchange, Patreon supporters can hear bonus interviews with the likes of Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others, all on a private feed delivered directly to their listening device of choice. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get that kind of access. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks so much in advance for considering. We finally saw the start of racing on the North American Ironman circuit this past weekend in Oceanside, California and Galveston, Texas, and you can be sure that one of the most popular topics of conversation leading up to those events was how people were going to get their nutrition and hydration during their respective events. After the fact, people who suffered will no doubt be lamenting how they didn't manage one or both of these areas well while those who did well will be able to look back not only on well-executed training and racing, but also on their well-planned nutrition and hydration. Now, I have spoken a lot on this program about those two critical elements for success, and it's no great surprise that there is an extremely crowded marketplace of products that are promoted as being the best in class to help a hungry or thirsty triathlete be best able to keep themselves primed to perform on the hottest days. Gatorade was the first of the sports hydration drinks to come to market more than four decades ago, and when it did, it had the tagline that it was, quote, tested in the lab and proven in the field, end quote. Gatorade was the first such drink to leverage science in its marketing to athletes, but it was, of course, not the last. Over the years, more and more products have come out, each promising to do an even better job of keeping an athlete hydrated and thereby performing better no matter the circumstances, and all, of course, backed by the ever-present but rarely really well-defined science. Now, I have, of course, dis discussed many such products on this podcast, and today it's time for yet one more. 
As a member of the Australian-based Cupcake Cartel, a triathlon team, very appropriately known as the sweetest team in triathlon, I have been connected with a pretty large number of athletes living in Australia and New Zealand. And through them, I first came to learn of a hydration product called Prepid, spelled P-R-E-P-D. Prepid is the latest in a long list of hydration products to make some pretty big claims that they say are all backed by science. But since it was only available down under, at the time I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. However, Prepid is now available stateside, and it's not cheap. A tub of 14 servings costs $41, with $20 for shipping making it $4.35 per serving, though it can be cheaper if you buy more than $100 worth of product, as shipping would then be free, and you can also subscribe to get continuous refills of product that would make the cost of each serving less as well. However, even in the least expensive way possible, it would still set you back about $2.30 a serving. Okay, so what is Prepid and what are the claims they are making? And most importantly, do those claims hold up? Well, Prepid is a solution principally composed of a modified digestion-resistant starch that is really the key to everything that its makers say the product can do. Prepid's co-founder, Graham Young, is a researcher at Flinders University in Australia and has had an exceptional career working in the field of developing oral rehydration solutions for children with diarrheal illnesses, specifically cholera, in countries where those illnesses continue to exact a huge toll in terms of both morbidity and mortality. Medical scientists have long known that oral rehydration solutions are really, really effective at treating dehydration caused by diarrheal illnesses, especially cholera. But there is significant resistance by communities to use this method for a couple of pretty understandable reasons. First, there's a perception that oral rehydration doesn't reduce the manifestations of the diarrheal illness itself. In other words, Parents may see their children drinking and becoming rehydrated, but if the diarrhea continues, then in their minds their child is not actually getting any better, even though medically they really are. Second, in cholera specifically, the oral rehydration fluids can actually make the diarrhea transiently worse, and this obviously can be a source of concern for parents who are very worried. What Young and some of his collaborators found, building on the basic science research of others, was that if they supplemented the oral rehydration solution with starches that are resistant to digestion in the stomach and small intestine, these starches would then be broken down in the large intestine by the bacteria that live there, and these breakdown products would facilitate fluid uptake from the large intestine and actually reduce the symptoms of diarrhea. Young's studies showed that in cases of cholera, it worked. Oral rehydration solutions fortified with these kinds of resistant starches proved more popular with parents, reduced diarrhea symptoms, and were more effective in rehydrating children with cholera. But there were a few problems with Young's product. First off, the effects were only seen with diarrhea caused by cholera, a very specific secretory diarrhea caused by a very specific type of virus that works in itself a very specific way. Other diarrheal illnesses, which are very common, in fact more common in certain parts of the world, did not seem to show the same benefits with these resistant starches. Now, this is not to diminish in any way the importance of Young's work. Cholera is a very serious disease, and even if resistant starches only work are only effective for cholera, this is incredibly important. A second issue for Young was that his resistant starch formulation was kind of expensive. 
Other naturally grown starches were much cheaper and actually accomplished the same thing. And for impoverished countries, this meant that while Young's findings would continue to be implemented and continue to have their incredibly important effects, it wouldn't be done with his product. So Graham Young is not just a great researcher who had some incredibly important findings and really has had some very important impact on children with cholera. It turns out that he's also a really good entrepreneur. After seeing the potential for profitability of his starch-containing product in treating diarrheal illnesses kind of disappear, he pivoted to a different group of people altogether. A group of people who similarly face issues of dehydration, but in this case, have the disposable income to afford his specific solution. And that group of people are athletes. And so, Prepid was born. Prepid is basically the same modified digestion-resistant starch solution, but now being marketed to athletes as a means of improving hydration by allowing for improved fluid absorption from the large intestine. I'm going to get to the notion that this is plausible in a few minutes, but if you're an astute listener of this podcast, then I hope that you will immediately be finding yourself asking the same question as I was at this point. Wait, wasn't this stuff developed for people with cholera? And how is an athlete's gut remotely like that of a child with cholera? Okay, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But that's not all, because Prepid makes a lot of other claims, that its resistant starches have some additional, kind of wondrous effects. On the Prepid website, there's a whole section dedicated to how the product improves gut health. It begins with the statement on how dietary fiber is essential to immune function and gut health and suggests that resistant starch is a form of fiber. To be clear, there is no evidence whatsoever that fiber has any important effects on immune function, though it clearly is important for colonic health and function, and most importantly, while resistant starches are technically considered a type of fiber, it is not clear that they confer the same kinds of benefits on colonic health as other types of traditional fiber that you find in vegetables and grains. There is then a whole lot of space on the website dedicated to a discussion of pre- and probiotics and how Prepid is a form of prebiotics that can result in all manner of improved formation and absorption of vitamins and minerals and fats from your colon. There are a couple of different problems with these assertions. First off, there's no hard evidence that any of it is true. Second, the large intestine, while quite effective at absorbing water, its ability to absorb anything else like minerals, fats, or vitamins is kind of a question. So all of the things being formed there might just be staying there. No studies have shown that anything being formed by the addition of these resistant starches to the diet are actually being absorbed or contributing to improved health. It's all kind of just speculative. Finally, and I think that this is most important, the site references a single article to hang all of its weighty claims about improved health on. That article was written in 2013 by an author named Bert, and it was a high-level overview of the possible benefits that resistant starches could have when incorporated into the diet. In his conclusion, Bert says very clearly that, quote, there is a need for considerable research to identify the potential effectiveness of digestion-resistant starches in the prevention and control of human diseases, and to identify mechanisms underpinning their actions, end quote. In other words, these are all the ways that we think resistant starches might be good, but we actually have no idea whatsoever if any of them actually matter. And despite Bert's calls for ongoing research and considerable amount of research to actually figure these things out, 
we could find none. So none of these questions have actually been answered, despite the fact that Prepid would have you believe that they have in the affirmative. So this doesn't stop our friends at Prepid saying that, no, actually, Prepid really does all these things. There's just no evidence to support them. Okay, well, that's the gist of all the claims floating around at the periphery of Prepid, but I think what we as triathletes really want to know is the answer to my original rhetorical question, and that is, if this stuff was designed for people with cholera and athletes don't have cholera, then does it actually work? Well, the absence of science to answer this question doesn't dissuade the good folks from Prepid from exclaiming forcefully and repeatedly that indeed it does. According to them, using their product in advance of an event will allow you to, quote, maximize your hydration status, end quote, going into your race and using it afterwards then allows you to best be able to recover. Now, there is no doubt that hydration status is important to performance, and staying hydrated is a key to performing well. But little science has been done to demonstrate that any one sport drink is better than any other, so it shouldn't come as any surprise that little evidence exists on Prepid. A single small study, unblinded and with very poor methodology, looked at some Aussie Rules football players and had them hydrate with or without Prepid. The results were hardly earth-shattering. Although they did not control anything in the study at all except for whether or not the athletes took Prepid, the authors made a conclusion, and the authors I should mention include Graham Young, that the athletes who used Prepid were better hydrated. They made this conclusion based on weight that they measured and hemoglobin measurements. And there are a couple of things to consider here. If, and that's a big if, indeed hemoglobin measurements were lower in the athletes who used Prepid, this, uh, to me as an endurance athlete, is actually concerning. I don't want to make my hemoglobin levels lower given that hemoglobin level is kind of important to oxygen transport and making me perform as an endurance athlete. But it also suggests something else. If you're diluting your hemoglobin, it suggests the possibility of overhydration. Now, I, for one, would be much more interested in knowing sodium concentrations for those individuals and not hemoglobin, because if they are truly overhydrated, then they may have signs of hyponatremia, which is kind of concerning. Also, because the athletes were free to consume whatever they wanted aside from Prepid, and because no one measured what amounts any of the players took, it seems a little bit of a stretch to suggest that Prepid made any difference at all. How do we know that they just weren't taking something else, other fluids, and overhydrating with that as opposed to the Prepid making any difference? Finally, what impact did any of this have on performance, which is really what we want to know? Well, who knows? Because this was not something that the authors felt was important enough to actually assess. Finally, one thing that was measured, athletes taking Prepid reported significantly more bloating, to the point of discomfort in some cases. Not too surprising if you are feeding your gut a bunch of sugar. I imagine there will be a certain amount of bloating involved, but the authors, not too surprisingly, discounted this completely. So that's it. That is all the science on Prepid in athletes that has been published and based on this. Prepid declares itself to be a, quote, revolutionary hydration enhancer, end quote. I'm not really sure what to take away from this, except to say that Prepid might work to help you hydrate before an event, but you know what else might work? Just drinking a whole bunch of fluid, because you're going to get hydrated exactly the same kind of way. Personally, I thank Dr. Young for his work on children with cholera. 
He has made a huge uh, advance in that science and has definitely helped children around the world because of his efforts. But barring infection with this virus, which I truly never hope to get, I'm going to be skipping this particular revolution. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on this podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or join the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook where you can ask questions for me to consider answering here and have discussions with other like-minded listeners. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Just a brief note before beginning the interview with Tim Don. Tim joined me while he was training on the island of Lanzarote in the Canary Islands, and his internet connectivity was really poor. Unfortunately, towards the end of our interview, there were more and more guests at the hotel getting on to, uh, getting online and streaming from services like Netflix, and so the connection dropped. So the interview ends uh, a little bit precipitously, and I'm working really hard to try and reschedule a follow-up interview with Tim, which uh, hopefully Hopefully, will be broadcast on a later episode. But we did get the majority of the interview done, and so here for your listening pleasure is uh, my interview with professional triathlete Tim Don. My guest on the podcast today is the one and only Tim Don. Tim has been involved in triathlon since his early teens and has progressed through the sport at almost as fast a pace as he finishes Ironman races as a pro. By the time he was 14, he had represented Great Britain internationally at a youth level, and well, the rest is history. He turned professional in 1997 and is still racing professionally today and loving it just as much as he did way back then. He's raced everything from the Super Sprint Arena Games right up to X-Try events and everything in between, from swim run races, adventure racing, team racing, relays, you name it, he's given it a go. He's also lived on three continents, Europe, Africa, and North America, following the dream of that perfect race and an endless summer to get the most out of his training. But he now sees himself as more of a custodian of the sport. It's given him so much beyond his wildest dreams, the adventures, the friendships, life experiences, self-belief in pushing his body and mind, the wins, and the broken bones. And now he wants to pass on all of his knowledge and experience that he's gained on his journey with everyone through something that he's calling Halo ID. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I know once we start talking together, you're going to see that infectiousness that he has, that uh, affinity he has for the sport. It comes out every time he speaks. And uh, I know many people know him as the man in the Halo, but I am thrilled to have him here on the TriDoc podcast with me. Tim Don, thank you so much for taking some time and joining me today. Wow, what an introduction. I need to hire you. <laughs> 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 well, it's, uh, it's not nearly as long as it could have been because uh, you really have had an incredible career in the sport. And uh, I, I love watching interviews with you. And that's why I've been so excited to speak with you because your enthusiasm for triathlon comes out 
every step of the way. So why don't we begin? Maybe you could just tell me a little bit about your history in the sport. I mean, you started at a really young age and found success pretty much immediately. Well, I don't know about that, but um, no, I was so fortunate. I think um, I was born born and raised in West Philadelphia. No, I was I was born and raised <laughs> in uh, West London. And, um, you know, how I found triathlon was through one of my local swimming pools that had a triathlon club there. And it was quite an active triathlon club, um, um, lots of amateurs. But there was this one guy who was pretty good there called Spencer Smith, who at the time was the ITU, um, I think it's world triathlon now, world champion um, for the professionals. So, you know, kind of like, I was like, oh, wow, this looks quite cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I got into it through him. So, um but I was always, it was always a bit different. Um, I, I swam and ran, you know, quite competitively, but um, I, I was always very competitive when I was younger and I was, I was probably only the third best runner at my school and I was probably only the fourth best runner in the county, so like in the state, in America, but I was probably top 10 in the country. I was just unfortunate or fortunate enough that two of my great friends, Sam and Ben, who went to my school, were international runners and then there was another lad called Mo Farah who I trained with uh, twice a week at the local running track when we were teenagers so <laughs> as much as it was great company I realized quite early <laughs> on I was not going to make it as a runner because these guys were far far much faster than me. Uh, yeah not too many people can say they had the opportunity to train with Mo Farah so uh, that had to have an impact. Oh, massively. But I think at that age, Mo wasn't the Mo you see today. He was a, 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 an amazing runner, but he wasn't the finished article. He was just a young kid who, um, yeah, who was a good runner. And, and we were all good runners, you know, in this run group, um, at Hounslow Running Club. And we just wanted to, yeah, we wanted to have fun and go fast. But definitely when I look back, you know, when I um, read his book and there's a, there's a, you know, a picture of myself, Sam and Ben running and he's on his bike next to us because he was too young. He was obviously a few years younger than me. He's riding his bike next to us and we're just like, you know, but I mean, again, it was, it was, I could bore you to death about, uh, about distance running. But, you know, there was a, a guy called Richard Naroka who was the a two, I think, don't forget this is in the, the mid nineties. He was a 207 marathon runner. He was just another guy that used to hang out in the local park. Daniel Komen, the first Kenyan or the first athlete to go under eight minutes for two miles. He used to train in the park, which is my local park. So it really was a hotbed of, of middle and long distance runners. So um, that was the heritage that through Bushy Park, the London Marathon, the, um, the, the, the guys that set that up, they were from the same town as myself. So um, it was really endurance, endurance. And then there was this local triathlon club and that was even relatively unique because it was an open air swimming pool in London that was open. 365 days of the year and now come rain or shine and there wasn't much shine and there was lots of rain <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing i mean that's uh you know they, they they say that the people you are around have such an impact i mean clearly you have to have the talent yourself but and obviously you congregate the people with talent together but if you're just all around each other you've got to be pushing each other and clearly that paid off for all of you so that that's pretty amazing did you mentioned several other people uh besides mo farah did any of them achieve uh, greatness in their individual sports as well i mean you mentioned Absolutely. the eight minute the sub eight minute the two miler obviously but you mentioned some others that i don't recognize their names 
Yeah, so Ben Whitby, he went on to the Commonwealth Games to represent yeah. England, um, yeah. and he's run 61 for a half marathon. Oh, Sam yeah. was European champion <clears throat> for 5,000 metres as a junior. Um, we went to school together. Unfortunately, he died in a car crash when I was quite young, when we were 23, um, when we were training in South Africa. But up until that age, he had won medals. He'd been British cross-country champion a few times, and he'd got many international honours. And yeah, obviously Spencer Smith, the triathlete, he won ITU World Championships um, twice and then he got fourth at Kona overall in the professionals as well. And he now lives in upstate New York, actually. Ah. He's got a coaching company um, up there. He's a, so, you got to Google him. He is larger than life. Some of the I photos. Will. Yeah, he's an yeah, amazing athlete. With Simon Lessing, they had they were two British athletes. Simon Lessing was very prim and proper, half South African, private school educated. Or Spencer Smith was a, he was a real Londoner. His dad was a Barrow boy, you know, a bit of a wheeler dealer. His dad always had a big cigar. And these guys just, just like clashed. But in a, in a very, I guess, poetic way when they raced, they're totally contrasting styles. Yes, it's a brilliant era to be brought up in British triathlon. Now, um, you, you obviously excelled in running. At what point did you decide that, you know, you're going to try this triathlon stuff? Um, I was about 13 and um, I was training to, I wanted to be a, a qualified lifeguard. So I was doing some basic courses and I saw this triathlon club. And um, in England or Great Britain, sorry, we have what we call bank holiday Mondays. So we have five Mondays throughout the year where we have a public holiday and this local triath- this local swimming pool, on all of these, they organised the local triathlon. It was a 400-metre pool swim. It was two 10-kilometre laps on the bike, 20 kilometres, and then a five-kilometre run. You ran from the swimming pool to Hampton Court Palace, did a U-turn, and then came back. And one Sunday or Saturday, I was doing my lifeguard, um, you know, my basic training as a, a young want-to-be lifeguard. And, um, yeah, they said they had some spare entries the next day. I used to ride everywhere because I couldn't drive. And, um, you know, it's the, the best form of transport um, to get from A to B in London. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I did it. And I did absolutely shockingly. But I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it just was a bit a bit peculiar, a bit weird, kind of going swimming, biking and running. And the swimming ball, you'd swim down one side of the lane rope, then down the other, then you tumble turn, push under the lane rope, so you kind of zigzag the pool, you know, and then every like ten seconds they'd start so it was the original rolling start. Iron Man weren't the first. Yeah. And it was literally you did this, you jumped on the bike and um yeah, it was I just really, really enjoyed it. And then um the club coach was a guy called Graham Fletcher and he was obviously there. He came up to me afterwards and he goes, oh, you're quite good at this. And I'm like, really? I got, oh, you know, I'm terrible. And he goes, well, how many triathlons have you done? I said, oh, no, that was my first. He said, well, why don't you come down to the club session? And I'd swam at that age, up, you know, quite a lot. You know, I was swimming, you know, probably five times a week. And yeah, he took me under his wing and he started to coach me. Um, and he coached me right through my first junior world title right through to Sydney Olympics and um, two years after that as well. So, yeah, it was a great, great relationship. My local club coach taking me all that way um, just because he saw me doing a local triathlon. That is pretty awesome. So as you look back through such an amazing career, Olympics, uh, Ironman World Championships, I mean, just on and on it goes. Uh, What do you think back on as some of your real defining highlights, the things that you think back on as sort of the more fond memories 
Um, I think when I was younger, I had a really good friend um, who was from Zimbabwe, um, and his parents were, his mother was English, and he he loved triathlon. He came over to England to train in the summer, and just as I was finishing school, my A levels, so finishing high school, he said, "Oh, why don't you come to come 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 to Zimbabwe for the summer?" And I knew it was at altitude, and I really. I knew altitude training worked for me because I'd trained at outdoors already and I had some good, good success. So the year I finished school, um, I finished all my exams, took a gap year, so didn't go to university, kind of took a year to, to travel. Um, and I told my mum and dad, this is, nine, this is 1996, I said, oh, I'm, I'm going, to, going to Zimbabwe for, for, for eight months to train. And they said, oh, well, how are you going to do that? I said, well, Robin's going to pick me up at the airport. I faxed in my... Um, I faxed in my flight details and I just went with it. And I think that was a real, that was a real kind of like stepping off the edge of the cliff and seeing what would happen. And yeah, I, I just fell in love with the sport. I had an amazing summer in Zimbabwe. I went back the next year and, and bought four other British athletes, international athletes with me so we could get a really good training camp in. And um, yes, it was the races. I, you know, the year after off the back of that training, I was the world champion as a junior, which set me up. You know, you need that step up to go into senior. But definitely it was having that faith, that belief, that desire of intrigue, travel that definitely set me up. Um, yeah. To, to, yeah. That's great. I love that story because, you know, you ask a lot of people and they think about their wins or they think about certain things. <laughs> and, and for you, it was that travel. And uh, uh, I think that's great. Um, now, most people will, of course, be familiar uh, with what happened to you in 2018. And, um, you know, if you haven't seen The Man in the Halo, uh, my listeners, you really should because it's, uh, you know, it's a 30-minute documentary. It's available on YouTube. And I think it uh, it gives such incredible insight to who Tim is as a person and uh, his uh, incredible ability to come back from such a devastating uh, injury. So let's just talk briefly about that crash. I'm sure you're probably sick of talking about it, but it, but it, to me as an emergency physician, I'm um, watching the reports of this and uh, you know, I mean, I, I do, I see people with these kinds of injuries all the time and usually they're not, you know, Instagramming from their hospital bed with a collar on telling everybody how they just uh, got hit by a truck and ha- now have a broken neck. Um, all I could think about at that time was how incredibly fortunate uh, you were. And I'm sorry, the, the crash was 2017, correct? Yeah. Yes, I got that wrong. Uh, I know it was 2017 because you raced, you came back in 2018, the year I was there. So in 2017 was the crash. And I remember watching um, your Instagramming from your hospital bed and just thinking in horror uh, of what had happened to you and being incredibly concerned about what this could have meant, uh, not, not for your athletic career, but just for your life. And I, you know, you looked so at ease and so uh, relaxed. And I'm just wondering, what did you really feel uh, as you were lying there and trying to process all of this? Well, I think at that moment in time, one word, and obviously being an emergency physician, you will really appreciate this, one word, morphine. <laughs> yeah. I literally, probably about 13, because um, up until, so when I got to the hospital, um, Obviously, I'm, you know, in, in a little bit of pain, but it's actually more my shoulder that was sore and I was worried I'd broken my collarbone. My knee was sore. My neck was, you know, in a brace, but it's kind of one of those breaks that isn't, I'm not saying it's not painful, but it's 
you know, it's kind of like a, um, it, it, it was all these other injuries that were definitely outweighing it. I, I wasn't, it's not that I wasn't worried. I didn't think, you know, my neck was that serious. And I had a couple of scans and they wanted me to go into, go into, go into for more scans. And I remember the last scan I had was, um, it was an MRI under contrast. So they injected it into my, this solution into my veins so they could see it going past and then they MRI'd me. And when I, when I went in, there were like three nurses. They slid me across onto the MRI table, did an amazing job, obviously, did the scan. And then they go through your headphones. Yep, yeah, okay, you're coming out. And when, they, when I was laying there with the brace on them, um, all of a sudden about 400 people came into the room. Someone held my ankles, someone my, my kind of shin, my knee, my head. I had all these people. All of a sudden it was like, okay, we're going to move in together. And instead of being three or four, there were literally seven or eight people and then I realized, oh, dear, this is obviously quite serious. <laughs> and then when I got back in, they still couldn't tell me because obviously the doctor had to tell me, not the nurses. So when they told me at that stage, I still hadn't had much pain meds because I was still thinking if I was going to race. <laughs> that's how delusional I was. Um, and obviously you can't race on certain medications. And then at that stage, um, I kind of really kind of hyperventilated, but I think it just hit me and I was like, <sighs> and then everyone got really worried because as I was kind of like <sighs> going like this, my body was moving. So they had to try and keep my chest still even more. They had to strap me down. And it was just, I guess, so then that's when they, I already had, um, how is it, a, a catheter in my arm. Yeah, and I um, Just yeah. in case they, just in case they needed to operate on me. Um, so that's when they put the morphine in. And at this stage, rumor had got out that I'd been in a bike crash, um, but, some you know it was a bad one it wasn't a bad one obviously social media is what it is my wife was in England <laughs> my Julie Dibbons my coach at the time and very very good friends and Franco my manager very good friend they were with me they were obviously in communication with Kelly and it's not that she didn't believe them but you know she's hearing what they're saying and they don't know exactly because we don't know and then she's reading stuff on social media um so I, we, we, they said you need to do something. So I was very high on morphine, and I, yeah, I gave that that message there and then on, on quite spontaneously. That explains and, a uh, lot. Really <laughs> and, and I'm sure you can, you know, that kind of process. You know, I'm sure you've seen, you know, yeah. the emotional highs and lows of yeah. someone that comes in with a trauma that they think it's okay, then they find out it's really bad, and then they get this euphoria of drugs and I think a Superman, oh, it's not that bad. Are you sure you're right? I'm fine, yeah, honestly, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like how that, that, that came out. And um, I didn't want to speak to Kelly, and I think it, I think that would have made it worse for me and definitely for her because she was in Boulder with, our, um, with Matilda and Hugo. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like how that, how that Instagram post came out. But it was a funny time because – if if I go to the doctors generally and the doc, doc and I've got a sore throat and the doctor says you've got strep throat you need antibiotics I'm not going to question him I'm just going to go yeah okay here's the prescription go and get it you know and it was the same they told me what was wrong with me and they told me this 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 and you're kind of like you know it's it's that's what the experts say and they've got the data to back it up they've got the scans so yeah that, that that's kind of like what you believe so I was very practical at that stage I realised I wasn't going to race so. I, realized I'd broken my neck they weren't so sure because they weren't specialists how bad or how not bad it was so I was still thinking well oh, maybe I could race before Christmas Arizona's always late and whatnot maybe I could go down to WA try and qualify for Kona for next year 
it wasn't really until I got back to Boulder and I saw Dr. V, the, the specialist, and he said, yes, this is actually quite a serious break and you have no idea how lucky you are for someone who's very unlucky. Because <laughs> I was in a yeah. cycle lane and a car did turn in front of me. <laughs> So uh, I want to ask uh, two things. Number one is it's not clear to me uh, as a medical professional. So just for people who are listening, C1 is a ring. Uh, C2 is a, a vertebrae that has like, um, it's called the dens that sticks up through C1. And the reason your head can turn is because the ring pivots around the dens. So fractures of C1 are very bad because the ring is broken and therefore you have dissociation from the spinal column. C fractures of C2 can be very bad because if this the dens gets broken, depending on where the dens breaks, it causes severe instability of the spinal column. So what kind do you know what kind of fracture you had? Because there are various types of fracture. You could fracture the dens, you could fracture the body of C2. I'm just curious, do you know which kind of fracture you had? So it was the right lateral mass. And okay. it was um, a, a fracture of the hangman bone. So you had the hang. Okay. The, so uh, for people who are listening, I'm describing this as I'm actually showing it. I, I, I video all of these and I will put this up on the, uh, the YouTube channel. But um, so uh, a hangman's fracture is a fracture of the posterior elements of the um, C2. And it is considered an unstable fracture. And then the lateral mass, so the, the, um, the vertebra, and I'll, I'll put some images over the, overlaying the video as I'm speaking from medical text so I can illustrate this better. But, um, the lateral mass of the vertebrae gets fractured in conjunction with the hangman's fracture. It leads to an incredibly unstable fracture. And I'm guessing because Tim, being as fit as and strong as he was when he had th this fracture, his neck muscles basically went into some kind of spasm and basically protected his spine from moving too much and causing uh, distraction, which would have impinged on the spinal column, his nervous, um, the, the spinal cord, and would have led to much more serious injury. So very fortunate and thankfully so. Um, and then uh, comes back and gets this news that he has choices in terms of what kind of procedure to do and decides to go ahead with halo fixation, which is the best way to return uh, to get the to get return of function, basically to allow the bones to heal by, you know, you, if you break an arm, you put your arm in a cast. If you break your neck, you can't put your neck in a cast. So the next best thing is to immobilize the head and the neck. And you do this by affixing this structure to your head in the form of a halo. Very uncomfortable. But um, it didn't even seem like it took you even, I mean, obviously the video shortens things. But how long did it take you to sort of consider the different uh, things that you had as options? Probably about two minutes, if that. Oh, really? It was that um, fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I flew back from Kona with um, uh, uh, Pat McKinna, a really good friend of mine, um, who was out there to watch the race. So he missed that to fly back. And um, I think the way the doctor described it, he said you could absolutely have the, he said, a fusion. Uh, um, yeah. He said later on, you might have complications just because your bodies move, everything moves individually. Right. Um, and obviously by doing that, if I wanted to carry on to be an athlete and then obviously just as I get older, you know, do lots of stuff with my children, he said, you might need to have another operation. He said, if you want to get back to being a professional athlete or try, never guaranteed anything, try to become a professional athlete again. Um, yeah, the best way to do it is, is a, a halo. And I said, yep, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then I genuinely said, what is a halo? I mean, I bet your listeners, you know, if they don't know who I am, haven't seen the documentary, 
I've never heard of a halo in terms of a medical term. It sounds pretty cool if you ask me. <laughs> well, it's really interesting, Tim. You know, uh, when I started in medical school and going through residency, we used to see people in halos not infrequently because that was the way that most cervical spine fractures were managed. But as neurosurgery and spine surgery has become more and more advanced. It's not the way things are done. Now they go in and they fuse and they use a lot of hardware to, to just, because it's quicker, it's easier. People don't tolerate halos. They're not going to, they're not going to be like you were. They're not going to follow the, the physio. They're not going to be as diligent. And having that halo on is well, you can attest to it. It's not very comfortable. Basically, it's a very bulky apparatus. You drill into the skull to, to basically fix this thing so that your head can't move and allow the bones to rest completely and, and so they can heal. Um, but I, I was familiar with it, but yeah, no, none of my readers are going to be. And again, I'll, on the video, I'll post a, a picture from uh, what Tim looked like when he was wearing his halo. And that's what it is. It, it just fixes your head so you can't move. And I think one of the most amazing scenes from that video was when they removed it and you just had for the first time, you were able to just sort of twist and you just, oh. that, you, you, the joy, uh, the relief oh. on your face was was wonderful oh, yeah. i mean yeah it wasn't so much the neck i mean i think um it was just the the, the tour i mean literally from my belly button upwards nothing yeah. had moved it did its job it was a plaster cast it it made the bone as stable but by you couldn't just isolate you know c2 you had to isolate boom 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 yeah and i oh, i mean yeah, you know, Tim, you're such an affable, you're such an approach, you know, and and you you share this uh, characteristic with so many of your fellow triathlon pros. You're very approachable, you're very friendly, you're you're very genuine, and I wonder, do you think that after the injury, you're even more so, or do you think you're the same person, but just more people are aware of you now because of the story? Um, I think outside our sport, more people are aware of me, especially, um, you know, initially, as you said, 2018, 2019. Um, but no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I've always appreciated the sport. I've, I've um, you know, I've, I've, I've been in this kind of like world, you know, from before it was an Olympic sport, before 70.3 racing really existed. You know, I remember, you know, wanting to race pig power, and, you know, Kenny Sues and all the old school boys. Um, so I've, I think I've always been like that. But I, I always take time to speak to people with a love of, you know, if someone supports, you know, the Broncos, I'm going to go and chat to them if I support the Broncos. And for me, you know, triathlon, <laughs> that's kind of like, you know, how it is for me. Um, and um, But, yeah, I think in the, the grand scheme of things, I'm just a, just a speck, you know, that, that makes up the rich tapestry of triathlon. Unfortunately, it was right about here that the internet connection dropped and I wasn't able to uh, get uh, the answer to my next question to Tim, which was about Halo ID. Uh, I am trying very hard to try and reschedule a follow-up interview with Tim so that we can have that uh, remainder of that conversation. I can ask a couple of more questions from him. And if I am able to, I will bring that to you as soon as possible. I am, uh, of course, incredibly grateful to Tim for the time that uh, he spent talking to me. And I hope that you enjoy that interview as much as I did. The Try Talk Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TryDocPodcast.com. 
If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, you can send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. You can also place a comment or a question in the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group, which is a private group on Facebook. You can apply to be accepted just by answering a couple of simple questions. I will grant you permission to enter, and then you can add your question or comment and have discussion with like-minded listeners. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.